Hello, everyone. This is Food Talk executive producer Rob Perra. Danny will be conducting interviews here every day, talking with experts on food and agriculture, and discussing topics like the impact of COVID-19 on the food system, unsung food heroes, how climate change continues to be a threat to agriculture, and other pressing social and environmental challenges that impact farmers, eaters, and the economy. Today on Food Talk, Danny is joined by Dr. Darius Mazafarian, a cardiologist, professor, and the dean of the Tufts University Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy. He chats with Danny about the connections between diet and health, the food as medicine movement, and policy responses to obesity and malnutrition, which are especially important in the face of COVID-19. Enjoy the show. Today, I'm really excited because I get to uh, talk to uh, Dr. Darius Mazafarian, a cardiologist and the dean of the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy, as well as a professor in both the Friedman School and the Tufts Medical School. He is widely respected uh, and cited uh, all over on nutrition, cardiovascular disease. He's a leader in the food uh, as medicine movement and a co-chair of last year's 50th anniversary conference to follow up on the White House Conference on Food, Nutrition, and Health in 1969. He has also been a very great mentor to me and friend to Food Tank, and we've been honored to hold events at the Friedman School where I graduated from a million years ago. ago. So, Dari, so great to see you. I, I wish it could be in person. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, of course. It's so wonderful always to speak with you, Danny. You're one of our uh, wonderful alums who does incredible social entrepreneurship and public impact and is really making a difference in the world. So uh, we're really uh, proud, proud to have you as one of our alumni. Well, I couldn't have done it without uh, the Friedman School, and that, and that is the truth. <laughs> um, so thank you. Um, so I, I want to dive right in. You know, COVID-19 is having devastating impacts all over the world, um, but there's a lot of links with n- nutrition and food and how we grow and, and, and produce food. And I know in March you co-authored a piece for CNN entitled How Your Diet Can Flatten the Curve. And I talked a little bit to uh, former Secretary of Agriculture Dan Glickman uh, about the poly- policy perspective at that work. But I'm wondering if you can dive in a little bit more to the ways food influences our immune system. What are those links? Yeah, you know, it's really incredible with COVID-19 how many interlinkages there are with food in our food system. Some of them obvious, but some of them not so obvious. And so, you know, among those, um, you know, the obvious ones are obviously the disruption to supply chains, the enormous food insecurity um, with people out of jobs and, and kids out of school. I mean, those things are, are, are massive, uh, but there's many, many others. And so, you know, uh, specific nutrients and foods could really improve um, the uh, immune response to COVID. And, and you know, we, we can talk about that more. More, right. science is, more science is needed, but clearly there's some foods and nutrients that should be being looked at. Uh, we know also generally just being malnourished is a risk factor for a poor immune response. And so for sure, just being malnourished is going to, you know, worsen, worsen COVID. And so those are two very, very direct ways by being sure people are at least minimally nourished, but also really specific nutrients that, that could help. The other big, big, you know, issue, which is really not being emphasized, um, is the severity of COVID illness um, is linked to basically major diet-related diseases, obesity, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease in particular. From an analysis in New York and analyses in China and Italy, around the country, around the country, elsewhere, around the world, people who have diabetes or high blood pressure or obesity 
a much, much higher risk of, of severe illness. And, and that should be addressed right away. And, and again, happy to, happy to talk about that as well. And so this combination of, you know, kind of disrupted production and supply chains, you know, poor, um, um, poor access to food or ability to afford food because of loss of schools and restaurants and, and loss of jobs and wages. Uh, and then, and then, you know, these additional issues around immunity uh, and also diet related chronic diseases, all of these things are intersecting around COVID. And I think food and nutrition are as important as they've ever been. Oh yeah, absolutely. So you talked about some specific nutrients that could really help, uh, you know, strengthen our immune systems to COVID-19 and probably uh, lots of other uh, viruses and, and illnesses as well. Can you talk about what some of those are? Yeah, well, you know, there's no um, nutrients that have been directly tested against COVID yet. And actually at Tufts, um, we're aiming, we're, we're designing a trial and aiming to actually de design a trial and get, get secure funding from foundations or potentially the federal government to, to do a big trial. Um, the science is not definitive. And, um, and so we really do need to test these, test these nutrients. But there's a range of vitamins, there's a range of flavanols, there's a range of minerals that have been looked at that we know on the one hand, improve the immune system function, in particular um, T cell responses to, to other viral infections. Um, a, a second key component is that several specific nutrients seem to have activity against uh, COVID-19 uh, specific proteins. And we know that from studies with SARS, the SARS coronavirus, which was, you know, has a lot of similarities and a lot of the proteins are very, very similar. And we know from studies and experiments that, that um, you know, those, those nutrients are important. And then, and then thirdly, what's really interesting, you know, beyond the kind of general immune boosting effects, the COVID specific protein effects, many of these same nutrients or other nutrients also kind of blunt or soften this excessive inflammatory response. That's really what's causing deaths in COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, in the flu with influenza, what often causes death is bacterial infection on top of the virus. People get the virus, the influenza, then they get a bacterial infection and they get sick. With COVID, what seems to lead to hospitalization, need for ventilator and death, is an excessive overwhelming inflammatory response that leads to kind of what's called cytokine storm. Mm -hmm. And many of these nutrients actually seem to blunt that. So the combination of all three of those things, boosting T cell function and other immune function, specific activity against COVID-19, and also this kind of blunted you know, in excess inflammatory response could really be powerful. And, um, you know, certainly the evidence is, is not perfect and we need, we need trials, but, you know, I see, and I'm looking at, you know, dozens and dozens of studies being funded on chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine and remisvidir and other drugs. And the evidence for these agents is at least as strong, if not actually stronger with much more attractive safety profiles. So, so we absolutely should be putting these at the top of their list. And, you know, there, there's a long list of, of nutrients and we're coming up with uh, kind of a, a, a specific combination, which I hope to be able to tell you about when we hopefully get funding, we can, we can you know, give you more details, but some of the foods, I wrote down some of the foods that I think people should be focusing on as, as they can that are rich in these vitamins and minerals. Um, uh, nuts, almonds, uh, hazelnuts in particular, all kinds of berries, citrus fruits, um, among vegetables, mushrooms, uh, sweet potatoes, red bell peppers, shellfish um, are, are rich in many of these nutrients, beans, and then, you know, interesting, not, not conclusive, but some kinds of tea, turmeric, others. Um, and so I think that, that, you know, it's too early to be telling people, go get the supplement and take this nutrient now to prevent COVID. 
but we absolutely should be testing the, these in trials. Absolutely. And, you know, it's it's kind of just a, a matter of eating the rainbow for your general overall health. These are all foods that are going to keep you probably healthy no matter what happens, no matter if there's a pandemic or, or not. You, you, you mentioned that there's a, a lack of evidence or concrete evidence, and there's lots of um, sort of anecdotal information. And, you know, you're, you're working on trials. I'm sure other major universities are as well and other uh, research groups. And, and I asked, uh, you know, Secretary Glickman a little bit about this, but it's surprising to me, and perhaps I shouldn't be surprised. I, I'm, I'm not <laughs> that naive, but why hasn't there been more research into the links between nutrition and health and, you know, real food is medicine kind of, of, of research? Yeah, well, I think COVID-19 is highlighting, you know, three big, big issues. You know, one is that we don't have, have not invested in the science that we should have invested in up until this point to have the answers to these questions, right? Shouldn't we have spent a significant amount of, of money, several billions of dollars a year studying nutrition and these questions so that when we get hit with the pandemic, we actually have the answers. We say, oh, we, we, we have all this information, here you go, right? We're, people are talking about stocking personal protective equipment and stocking ventilators and stocking vaccines, but what about stocking science on food and health and nutrition, right? That, that would have been incredibly important. Second, I think that there's um, incredible fragmentation of, of the food supply, of our food policy, of our food, of our food research. Um, we've COVID-19 has highlighted that more than ever before, how fragmented all of these investments are. The federal government, state governments are investing in many, many different aspects of the food system and it's fragmented. And then I think third that has been really highlighted is that, you know, COVID is a very, very vicious, you know, pandemic, but we've had an equally vicious pandemic that's just been slower of obesity and diabetes and other diet-related diseases. It's been slower, like instead of over a year, it's been over 30 or 40 years. It's not that slow. 30 or 40 years is really fast. Right. But because it's happened over 30 to 40 years, we've kind of ignored that equivalent or even larger pandemic. And now they're coming together and we're seeing that that we've sort of, you know, set up an environment of, of people with poor metabolic health who are predisposed to COVID. In, in you know, um, many analyses, um, it seems that, um, you know, these, these risk factors like diabetes and obesity and hypertension are such so important. Um, if we had a healthier population, you know, one could estimate that the great majority of hospitalizations would have been prevented. And so right. instead of shuttering our economy and spending trillions and trillions of dollars on necessary bailouts and other things, this would have been like a very, very bad flu season if we had a pretty metabolically healthy population. And so that's important because COVID is going to be with us for years. Um, and we have to remember, this is actually the third pandemic uh, that's that's hit the world. SARS and uh, MERV in the Middle East just didn't hit the US. So we didn't pay attention to it. But this is really the third one. So more are coming. This isn't the only one. And so both to deal with this pandemic and future ones, we should be absolutely making it a priority to improve the, the population's metabolic health. And so I think those three things, and I hope we can talk more about each of them, some specific solutions. We need more science um, and public health. We need um, better coordination of our, of our, you know, nearly $200 billion federal investments in food and nutrition policy. Uh, and we need, uh, and we need to make it a major priority to fix the metabolic health of our country. If not now, when? 
if not now, when is for sure. You talked about sort of this fragmentation and, you know, people like you and and, and I and, and many others have been talking about the need for breaking down silos in the food system for, I mean, I've been doing it for as long as I can remember. So I, why, I mean, do you think that this, this pandemic will, will help break down those silos or at least chip away at them a little bit? Well, I think one analogy, which is interesting, is is September 11th. So after September 11th, there was a recognition that the national intelligence was excellent, but fragmented. And so we were spending about $50 billion a year on national intelligence across the CIA and the FBI and, and many, many other organizations, and yet it was fragmented. And so Congress and the White House recognized this, and they created the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the ODNI. Um, to coordinate national intelligence uh, at the highest level, report to the White House, report to Congress, report to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, report to the federal agencies. Uh, and it's been very successful. And, and so that, I think, recognition, we're, we're, we're seeing a similar recognition, I hope, of the fragmentation of, of food policy from production to supply chains to health to science. And so, and the, the federal investment in food is much, much greater than the federal investment in national intelligence, at least $150 billion a year across USDA, um, uh, USAID, the CDC, the FDA, the EPA, and, and, and the, the Department of Defense, the VA. Um, it's and almost every agency actually has, has food-related um, food related, uh, programs and policies. So that much larger Frag fragmented you know, set of investments, I think we need to coordinate that. And so I think that this is the time to call for a similar office like the ODNI for food. And it could be the office of the National Director of Food and Nutrition, right? There should be an office of a National Director of Food and Nutrition, a cabinet level office that, that brings together all of these incredibly important agencies that are doing great work. I'm not trying to criticize the agency's work, it's just fragmented. And and that could be incredibly valuable and powerful. And I really think Congress should should consider that the same way they recognize the need to do so for national intelligence after September 11th. Absolutely. I love that idea. Office of National Food and Nutrition. I have many people I, I would recommend for that posting. <laughs> that would be wonderful. Um, I, I want to change gears a little bit and, and talk about, you know, what we've been hearing on the news is that more people are cooking at home than ever. And, you know, this could lead to folks having, you know, not only a greater interest and awareness about where their food co comes from, but also eating better. But I don't know if I'm buying that. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why for a couple of reasons. I feel like um, snack food sales have gone dramatically up during this time. People are investing a lot in sort of comfort foods. And so I, I'm interested in hearing what you think about this sort of, you know, yeah, more folks are definitely eating more at home, but I'm not convinced that they're eating better at home than they were pre-pandemic. Well, I'll tell you what we knew before this hit. So we knew before this hit that on average, Americans' diets are, are slowly improving over time. Very, very modest improvements. We're still a long way away from where we need to be, but they're slowly improving. Sure. But almost all of that improvement has happened in foods purchased at the grocery store and in schools. Um, and so foods and restaurants, almost no improvement. And so certainly the shuttering of restaurants, while economically devastating, overall for overall nutrition, that could be a positive if people went and cooked and, and purchased healthier foods and, and learn how to cook. But I totally agree with you that I'm, I'm concerned that we don't know, first of all, it's kind of shocking that we don't have real-time surveillance. Another reason for 
more research in public health infrastructure and, and surveillance is one of the crucial things, right? To actually be able to, to survey what's happening to people's diets. I think there's probably going to be these two different camps, right? There's a camp of people who are going to be at home and getting, you know, the worst possible pre-prepared foods and comfort foods and snack and junk foods because they just have no idea what to do in the kitchen right. or, or because of income and, and access. And then at the same time, there's going to be people who are for the first time ever actually saying, hey, I can actually sit and cook and, and make, assemble some reasonable things. Um, so I think what's, what's most um, concerning to me, most shocking to me, most upsetting to me, what keeps me up at night is we're not leveraging this moment to, to help shift that. We're just watching it happen and, rather than doing something about it. So if you think about how much time and effort and attention major cities, public health experts are spending to talk about social distancing, about wearing masks, about hand washing. Right. Of course, the response hasn't been uniform, but but there's been a huge change in behavior across the country overall because of this public health messaging. Why in the heck aren't we adding to that? You're, you're at home, 300 million, 330 million Americans are at home cooking. We know metabolic illness is the top single predictor outside age of, of having poor outcomes. Um, if we want to bend the curve, if you want to be healthier, you should be eating more healthy. And to give specifics about what that means, because otherwise people get confused, but give some really clear specifics and being going out and exercising. Every single day, the government should be should be giving that message out um, because we're, we're sort of losing this incredible opportunity to get that message. If we even improve metabolic health in the United States 5%, you know, this could be this could be massive for COVID. And and people think about obesity, and obesity does take time, I mean months to a year to improve. But diabetes and hypertension, well done randomized controlled trials show that within five to six weeks of changing your diet without exercise and without weight loss, you can substantially improve your blood pressure and your inflammation and your and your glucose and insulin values. Now we don't know for sure whether that will immediately translate into lower risk of, of severe outcomes with COVID, but we, it should, and it's not going to hurt to have a healthier population. Five to six weeks, right? And so and so, this should be massive. And and what's interesting, um, it, it, Danny, is that in the, in the United Kingdom, because of Boris Johnson, the prime minister, getting so sick and being overweight and realizing that his, his, his being overweight put him in the ICU, this is on the front page of the United Kingdom, newspapers on the front page, Boris Johnson is talking about it. The United Kingdom is saying, okay, look, we have a metabolically unhealthy population. We can address this. Um, by, by recent estimates, 88% of American adults are metabolically unhealthy, 88%. If you just look at waist circumference, um, glucose, blood pressure, and, and cholesterol, just four things, 88% of Americans are metabolically unhealthy. We should rapidly try to improve that through just public health messaging to start. And then, and then once we've done that, there's actually policies we should start to implement, which I know is something you're very interested in is, you know, what are policies to make it easier for people to be healthy? Because this isn't about just free will and personal choice. This is about having environments that help people make better choices.
Right. And and that's especially concerning right now when you have so many people out of work and then you have that on top of, you know, folks who are living in underserved communities, communities of color who are disproportionately affected by COVID-19, you, you know, the, the, the lack of open grocery stores, just, you know, disruptions in the food supply chain that you talked about, which leaves many shelves bare. There's a lot going on here that, and, you know, this idea that you mentioned of leveraging this moment, I don't think we're doing that in the creative ways we could. And, and I don't want to blame everything on, on the federal government or the administration, but I, you know, when you look at what some cities and towns and, you know, other municipalities are doing, that they're handling this in, in very different ways. And I think we have a lot to learn from some of those smaller governments at, at this point. Yeah, and I don't know. I agree with you. It's not just up to the federal government to do this. You know, mayors and governors should, should be doing this, too. And I haven't heard this emphasized anywhere in the United States. You know, so if you know of places that are doing this well, you know, I know in our city, uh, the mayor has kept the parks open, which I think is nice. Um, that's good. And I think that's important. And, you know, told people to socially distance, but go out and exercise. But it hasn't been a daily message to go out and exercise, right? Um, and and we're probably one of the more, um, you know, progressive, um, um, you know, neighborhoods here in Massachusetts. So I think that this message around food being medicine and food being important for, for risk um, is is really important. I want to give you a chance to talk about, um, before you have to leave, to talk about, you You know, you, I know you and, and uh, former Secretary Glickman work a lot together on these issues and, you know, both the policy angle and the nutrition and food angle. Uh, and, and last uh, summer, you wrote uh, an op-ed uh, entitled, Our Food is Killing Too Many of Us. And you called on every presidential candidate at that time to have a food platform. And I think now that's more important than ever, where, you know, just a few months really now away from the election and, and no one is talking about food. I, I mean, certainly the, the president isn't. I, I've heard very little from uh, uh, the potential, uh, you know, the the nom- who I assume will be the nominee, uh, Joe Biden. What, what I mean, if you had if you were in the room with both of them right now, what would you tell them? Well, I think that whoever wins, you know, the national election, whatever the next administration is, um, you know, food and nutrition um, and the whole food system is a, is a massive opportunity. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to make our country healthier. Uh, it's an opportunity to reduce disparities, diet related health disparities. It's an opportunity to preserve our natural resources, our soil, um, our forests, our oceans, um, our climate. Um, it's an opportunity for I think most importantly for the government to reduce healthcare costs. We have spiraling out of control healthcare costs and, and, you know, we have a sick care system and we need to shift that through, through, you know, making people healthier. I'm a cardiologist. I believe in our healthcare system. We have one of the best healthcare systems in the world for treating acute disease. We don't have a good system for preventing disease. And so we need to shift, shift to prevention. And this is an enormous opportunity for economic uh, development for new businesses and jobs. There's billions of dollars going into innovation in the food system. Lots of small startups, um, uh, you know, doing really innovative things. The government should be encouraging and incentivizing that for nutrition and equity and sustainability. And then, lastly, this will reinvigorate our our farms in our rural regions. You know, the, the the middle of the country, which produces all the food, where farmers are struggling very, very hard to make ends meet. Uh, and we need to be shifting and giving them tools to be able to make you know, healthier, equitable, sustainable foods. The world is gonna demand foods that keep us nutritious, 
that are equitably, you know, uh, accessible and affordable uh, and that are sustainable for the earth. And if whatever country figures that out is going to be way ahead in their economic success and in, in their jobs. Um, and so, you know, energy was this and 20, 30 years ago, this was about energy. Energy was the big, you know, thing of the future. That, and, and I think this has been true. The countries that have figured out solar and batteries and wind are really doing well. And that, and so we need to do this for food. Um, uh, and so, if I, you know, um, uh, all of us, not just I, I think all of us need to be telling our policy leaders, our our, our state policy leaders, our congressmen, our senators, um, and the candidates on in both parties, that food is important to us. Food is important to health. Food is important to equity. Food is important to the economy. And there needs to be a food platform. And, um, you know, what that food platform is, it needs to, to have all of those elements in it, elements around how we can better leverage our investments in schools, how we can better leverage our investments in the federal feeding programs, um, how we can use business innovation and spur business innovation, how we can make the food environment a, a place where, you know, the default choice, the cheaper, easier choice is, is healthier, um, uh, and, and all of that can be done. What's exciting, Danny, is, is, you know, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, I don't know that we had the policy science to answer these questions. And, you know, it's not perfect, but we know a lot. And so we know if you, if you leverage um, things that the federal government can do now, um, we can make a difference. And I'll just give you one example to not keep it at the 10,000 foot level. I'll give you one example is, is food as medicine and healthcare. So, Again, we know food is the single leading cause of, of poor health and the single leading opportunity for prevention. And yet nutrition is pretty much ignored in the healthcare system. And so there's several ways that we know should be, should be tested at least to implement this. One is produce prescriptions that you go to a doctor, you have a certain medical condition and they give you a prescription to go get not just fruits and vegetables, but hopefully also nuts and beans and seafood and healthy oils and some whole grains. And you go get that prescription and all or part of it is paid by your health insurance, the same way your health insurance pays for really expensive drugs or cancer chemotherapy or surgery. That's being, ha that's happening right now. That's being implemented in some private healthcare settings it, 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 and it's being actually tested uh, uh, with support by the farm bill in, in a very small way that needs to be expanded. So that's just one example of, of the things that, 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 that can be done. And so, um, you know, there's no single solution. There's, I, I can't just say, let's just tax soda and everything will be fixed, right? That's, we're not going to have a single solution. Um, although taxing, you know, junk foods could be one way to raise revenue to, to subsidize healthy foods. Um, but but um, we need an overall package. And, and you mentioned before, you know, we did this 50th White House conference um, uh, 50 years ago, now more than 50 years ago, 1969, the federal government for the first time in its history and the last time, took a big picture look at food and said, how is food affecting our country and what, what should we do? The focus in 1969 was on severe caloric, you know, uh, insufficiency, severe hunger where kids didn't have calories. Um, and it was a huge problem in the 60s. And there were massive um, positive impacts of that 1969 conference, which was organized by Dr. Jean Mayer, who went on to found our school. Uh, and uh, and that conference had many, many things that it changed. It standardized and, and expanded school lunch. It standardized and expanded food stamps. It led to improvements at FDA, consumer protections. It modernized the dietary guidelines process. It led to school breakfast. It led to WIC, the Women's Infants and Children's Program. None of those things existed before this conference. 
well, it's been 50 years and we have a very different set of problems. And so I think what I would recommend to the next administration is to have another White House conference on food, nutrition and health, bring in all the stakeholders um, from, you know, advocacy organizations to um, people representing, you know, the, the, the public to uh, folks working on equity to business, um, to, um, you know, science, scientists, public health, and let's roll up our sleeves. There's win-win solutions here. It's win-win, right? This isn't like tobacco where it's a fight to the death and we're just trying to eliminate tobacco. We can make healthy food that's sustainable and affordable and and everyone will benefit. And so I think that um, this is really the future of, of our country is to fix food. Absolutely. What a great point. I also like that you said food is, uh, is an opportunity. And because you work with so many young people who are you know, starting their careers as nutritionists and diet policy leaders and, and real food system uh, thinkers and doers, you know, they, this, this is really one of the most exciting times to be involved in food, nutrition, and agriculture. So thank you for all the work that you did, you do for, um, you know, people like me, much younger than me, um, who, you know, come through these programs at Tufts, because I think you're providing a great service. I want folks to be able to know how to get in touch with you. They can go uh, to Twitter at dmazafarian. Um, and the Friedman site is nutrition.tufts.edu. Um, and uh, we will also have those links available on our website. Uh, Dari, you have taught me so much. Thank you for sharing your expertise today. And I'm really glad you could join us. I, I hope folks will join us with, uh, for our next episode with Tony Hillary from Harlem Grown. Thank you so much, Dari. Please stay well. No, thank you so much. Thanks, Dan. Bye. Take care. Thanks so much for listening to Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share the podcast. Make sure to return to foodtank.com every day for original reporting and analysis on the most pressing issues impacting our food system.